0: scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 23, 11 to 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go... Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of his conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You may be seated.
1: And as you're seated, would you, would you join me in prayer? Yeah, you know, Father, we, we sang this this morning, but help us to believe it by your spirit. Uh, you are holding us together this morning. In the same way we look out the windows, we see the mountains, you're holding those to the ground. The clouds which you're holding in the sky, this whole universe which you're holding together, you also hold us together. We say thank you. Help us to be those who glorify you with our lives that you have purchased through the work of your son Jesus. We love you. Pray these things in his name. Amen. When I'm speaking to my my children, if you don't know, I have four of them, so I speak often to my children. Uh, When I speak to my children, I have to repeat things. Like, no, do not dangle your little brother from the top bunk upside down. Don't do that. Don't have to repeat that, but you should not do that ever. Still don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And my wife will tell you that uh, uh, our boys are not the only boys in the house who need to have things repeated to them. Right, she needs her to tell the older boy uh, often the same things over and over again. Right, don't leave your hair in the sink after you shave. You can clean it up. Right, right. Watching the Raptors game right before the kids go to bed is not most helpful to me. In fact, it's very unhelpful uh, to me. Things to be repeated over and over again. All of us, whatever the relationship, need to be reminded of the same things over and over and over again. But not all repetition, some of it is due to thoughtlessness, but not all repetition is to be overcome. In fact, some repetition will go on forever. There are some things, regardless of how smart or thoughtful or intelligent we are, that we need to hear over and over again, time and time again. In fact, this is how God made us. And so the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, he says at the beginning of chapter 3, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is, he says, safe for you. It's safe for you. Why is it safe for us to be reminded of the same thing? That This word here in Philippians has the idea of being guarded, by these oft-repeated truths. These are truths that we need to hear over and over again. As our foundation, we stand firm on them. And as our walls, we're guarded by them. See, we need the walls of the truths of Scripture because as is the case in Corinth, and as is the case in Vancouver, and as is the case in my heart and your heart, we, we are prone to go after the shiny and the new and that which tickles our ears. Isn't it true? As you probably have picked up by now, if you've been with us in our series in 1 Corinthians, the thing that most appealed to the Corinthian church, the thing that they needed to be reminded on over and over and over again was surrounding the idea of freedom. 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 Freedom for the Corinthians and for us sounded quite similar. It meant this. Freedom means saying yes to every whim and desire, they said. Freedom means, they said, not having to think about how this decision will impact somebody else. I'm just accountable to me. Freedom for the Corinthians was unlimited desire, opportunity, and a choice to serve ourselves, to further our kingdom in our quest for upward mobility. That's what's good about freedom, they believe. And of course, the result in Corinth is not a thriving and a growing and a healthy community, but what? A fractured, divided, very unhealthy community. And so today, Paul is in essence saying, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so let me remind you, and here's our outline. You have been freed, he's going to say. You have been freed. So use your freedom to love your neighbor And then thirdly and finally, that God may be glorified in all you do. You have been freed, so use your freedom to serve your neighbor that God may be glorified in all you do. We together? We're here? All right, point number one. Grab your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 27. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles at the back for you. You can take it and keep it. It's our gift to you. But read this with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 25 to 27 There Paul writes and we read Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience For he says and he quotes Psalm 24 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And we'll stop there. If you remember, if you were here last week, Paul gave the church in Corinth a stern warning. He said, listen, do not go to the temples and eat the meat there. Why? Because to eat that meat, to participate in that meal, is not to have your union with Christ encouraged and strengthened, but actually to have your union with Christ severed. As you participate in this demonic, Paul will say, idol worship. She says, don't do it. And while they might not be saying this in response, I can imagine the Corinthians saying something like this. Dad, I mean, Paul, he never lets us do anything. Oh, can't even go and participate in one pagan ritual. Come on, Paul, like, like, loosen up a little bit here. What, what's going on? This might sound silly. But there's something in this potential response that Paul wants to clarify. Namely, even though I'm saying no here, you truly are free. You're just not free to provoke the Lord to jealousy, as he said in verse 22. See, what we're going to see in our text today in, in verses 23 all the way to 11, verse 1, is that Paul is navigating a narrow road. A narrow, narrow road. And on both sides of this road are deep, 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 treacherous ditches. He wants us to avoid those. See, on one side of this road, we'll see this. He's saying a a firm no. (laughs) No. I don't know if he said no before and, like, really meant it. Like when a kid asks something for, like, the 20th time. No. No. This is a firm no to the extreme freedom that says, hey, there's no problem with me engaging in demon worship. He's saying, no. No. But on the other side of that ditch... He's avoiding the extreme legalism that would say, well, you know what? If there's danger here, we might just be safer to avoid eating meat altogether, right? Let's just actually make a rule. We don't eat meat now. That's actually how our church functions, and and we'll just codify that in the list of rules. He's avoiding these two ditches, this extreme sort of understanding of freedom and this extreme legalism on one side. And notice in the verses that we just read, Likely, the very same meat that the Corinthians were told to avoid in the temple, Paul says they're now free to buy in the market. They're now free to eat in a home. In in Corinth, it's not like today. When we get our meat today, it comes with a label, right? It tells us, has the cow been massaged? Check, right? Has the cow been like read poetry to? Right? Has it had a humane existence? What did it eat? What did it not eat? It comes with a label. It tells us where it's from. In, in Corinth, it wasn't shrink wrapped like that. In Corinth, all meat, all the meat in the homes that they would eat, all probably had some relationship to the temple. At some point or another, was probably involved in temple worship. And So Paul says, Corinthians, don't spend your time worrying about the origins of meat. And then he says, and he quotes Psalm 24, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, Corinthian church, you really are free because everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. See, I need to hear this and and you need to hear this because every single one of us has, I think, an inner legalist. Right? Right? Even your inner anti-legalist is pretty legalistic about being anti-legalistic, right? We all have an inner legalist. We all have a voice saying, if you're a Christian, well, let me shore up my relationship with God by doing this spiritual thing, going on this spiritual pilgrimage, or by abstaining from this food or this Thing, this good thing which belongs to God. Personally, my inner legalist, it sounds like this. God accepts me and loves me uh, on the basis of my devotional time, on the basis of its frequency, its quality, and its profoundness. And, And in that system, do you know how I know God loves me? If I have like a big vision from God. If God gives me like a sort of like trance-like vision. I haven't had one of those yet. You see the unstable ground that I'm walking on, that if I'm tempted to believe the inner legalists. And there are minds, I think it's true of all of us, regardless of how you come this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, we begin our days feeling as if we need to justify our existence. Justify the air we breathe. Justify this seat we're sitting in. Again, we all have an interlegalist, Christian or not. And if you don't believe me, I invite you to go to your workplace this week or or to go to your home. and, And go and ask one question of your work or of your home. Ask this question. What must I do in order to be justified in this place? Or to maybe ask it in a less religious way. What must I do in order to belong in this place? Legalism is not only the tendency of the overly sensitive or the religious or the pious. No, it's the trajectory of all human hearts. All of us are born with the desire to make our own self-salvation systems. Why? So that we can control it so that I can know when I'm justified and not justified, so that I can know when I belong and when I don't belong, so that it's in my hands. All of us, same innate desire. And we see it in Scripture with the Pharisees, right? Their endless adding of laws. We see it all the time today in people and in churches that impose strict dietary restrictions, strict Sabbath observance requirements. And about such people, Jesus is abundantly clear. He says in Matthew 24, those who do such things, who impose these laws, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This legalism, these rules, Paul says in Colossians 2, indeed, listen, Christ City, have the appearance of of wisdom, right? And look at that guy. You know, he wears sackcloth all the time. You know, he's a vegetarian and he fasts for months at a time. He must be spiritual. He must be holy. Or or look at that girl. Look look what she does or or does not do. Surely she's spiritual. Paul says they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting what? self Made religion. Not as James says, true and pure religion, but self-made religion. Isn't it easier with self-made religion? Self-made religion. And asceticism and the severity to the body. But listen, Christ, he and Paul couldn't be more clear, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I feel sometimes like I'm one rule away from being holy. I'm one good rule of life away from From being accepted before Christ. Do you feel that way? Legalism looks spiritual, but it's powerless. It's powerless. In fact, the only power these self salvation projects possess is the power to further enslave you. And they've got lots of that power. Christ City, the first point this morning should be shouted You have been freed. You have been freed. Through the work of Christ, you have been free. The Bible tells us that Jesus, by fulfilling the law on our behalf, by doing what we could not do, has moved us from slaves to sons and daughters, from chains to children. That's the movement of the good news of Jesus. Christ city, again, you really are free. It is safe for me to repeat this. You really are free. And Jesus has freed you to an extent that no food, either eaten or abstained from, can change your position as son or daughter. Christ City, you really are free. So tell your inner legalist to stuff it. To stuff it. Because Christ's work on our behalf has already once and for all justified us before our Heavenly Father. Christ city, you really are free. And so picture with me, when you wake up tomorrow morning, before you read your Bible or say your prayers, because those are good things to do, know that because you're united to Jesus and because you're free, Jesus has been praying for you while you slept. Before you did anything, he was praying for you. Before you were asking feebly and and sort of grasping for things before the Father, Jesus was praying for exactly what you needed before the Father. You have been freed. You're justified. You belong to him and to him alone. We have been freed from the devil from the demonic, freed from the unbearing weight of our unending creation of laws, freed from our own flesh and its desires. But as Paul will remind us once more, again, it's safe for him to do this. You have been freed too. Freed from, yes, but also freed to. Look at verse 23 with me. Point two so use your freedom to love your neighbor. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Verse 28, let's skip down there. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, and do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his Notice, maybe in your Bibles it says, you say, or maybe it's in quotation marks. What we encounter here in chapter 10 is the same slogan, Corinthian slogan, that Paul had already brought up in chapter 6, right? And in chapter 6, this slogan was being employed by the Corinthian church to justify their visiting of brothels. And Paul's saying, listen, that's not helpful. Further, you've been united to Christ. So how can you unite Christ to a prostitute? And now he's saying here in chapter 10 that the same slogan is being employed, except this time it's being employed by by Christians, by Corinthians, who want to say, listen, I can eat meat whenever and wherever I like. It's my freedom. Right? It's my freedom. If the last ditch was legalism, this other ditch is unbridled freedom, which pays no mind to our neighbor, no mind to the weaker brother or sister. So notice, if you're tracking with the text, Paul invites us into a third scenario. First scenario, he says, listen, buying meat in the market, good, do it, get it. Otherwise you can't eat meat. And God's given us meat to eat, enjoy it. Second scenario, you go to somebody's house, they're they're offering meat on the menu, eat it. Receive it with thankfulness. God made it. Third scenario, same dinner party, except someone says before you eat, sit down to eat the meal, hey, just so you know, this meat has been sacrificed to idols. Sacrificed to demons. Now, now we don't know exactly who this person is. But, but my best guess, and really it's, it's my best guess, is that it's a brother or sister in Christ who has joined you at this meal. And, and maybe, again, speculating here, maybe they're newly converted. They've just been really heavily involved in temple worship, in pagan, idol, demonic worship. And they're newly converted. And eating that meat just doesn't sit right with them. And so what do you do? What do you do? And the answer is clear. Paul says, you seek the good of your neighbor. I love the way uh, two Bible teachers put it. Christian liberty, Christian freedom is about another Corinthian Christian at the same party who has no scruples against eating meat. And just as he gets ready to dig into the slab of steak on his plate, someone sitting next to him leans over and says, don't eat it. It's been sacrificed. And for the sake of that man and his weak conscience, the meat lover puts down his fork and says, thank you for telling me that. Guess I'm having salad. See, a view of Christian freedom not only recognizes, importantly, what we've been freed from, but must, must recognize what we've been freed to. And to fail to recognize what we've been freed to is, in fact, to poison both our witness and the church community itself. Let me say three things here. How does this work itself out? For one, as just described, to to, to Fail to recognize what we've been freed to do could lead the weaker brother or sister back into idolatry. So let me bring this into the 21st century for us. Imagine for a moment I show up at a party. Show up at a party. In my hands is a bottle of wine. In fact, it's a nice bottle of wine, right? I've done nothing wrong. In Christ, I am free to have that glass of merlot. But as soon as I come into this party, someone pulls me aside and says, "Hey, Jake." There are some brothers and sisters here who are just out of recovery who would be adversely affected by you drinking at this party. Can you put that away? What's my role in that moment? I'm free. I'm gonna have my glass of wine, gosh garn it. Whatever that means. Gosh darn it. I'm gonna use my freedom here. Oh. Paul says, You've been freed to love your neighbor. And so so put it back in in, in your, 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 your coat. Put it back in your wife's purse. You don't have to drink that wine. This could lead the weaker brother or sister back into idolatry, and so be aware of that. Second, freedom that is not used in the service of others has the potential to hinder our witness. In fact, obscure the gospel. Look at verse 32. Paul writes, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking, listen, Christ said, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. In other words, leading people to Jesus will require at times you to limit your freedom. It will require you at times to limit your freedom. Easy example. Say you work and live in a Muslim context. It's easy. In fact, you should eat halal, abstain from alcohol and pork, though you are free to eat and drink in Christ. This is one way you can practically not seek your own advantage, but restrict your freedom for the sake of winning that Muslim brother or sister to Christ. Simple idea. Or maybe you find yourself living not too far off commercial drive and all your friends like mine are vegans, right? Here's a good idea. Buy a vegan cookbook. Learn some new recipes. Show your neighbor you love them and honor them by not serving them chicken but chickpeas. Now this all makes sense. I think we get this basic concept. But I want to ask a question because the question that usually comes up at this point is to what extent do we do this? To what extent do we do this? Are there limits on how much we limit our freedom? Because look at verse 33. Paul there says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now in the hands of the wrong person, verse 33 is absolutely deadly, right? Because it sounds like Paul in verse 33 is this anxious people pleaser. In everything I do, everything I do, everything I do. Again, if you've been with us so far in this first Corinthian series, you know that's not the case. If Paul were a people pleaser, he would have played the Corinthian game. He would have come to them as a trained and polished rhetorician, right? Would have accepted patronage, would have accepted payment, and would have, you know, risen in the ranks of respectability in the Corinthian world. He's not a people pleaser. It's not what he does. See, Paul, and this is a helpful distinction for us, is not a people pleaser, but a people lover. Not a people pleaser, but a people lover. And while those two things sound similar, they couldn't be more different. Let me explain. A people pleaser begins from a place of lack. Of lack. Not only does a people pleaser lack true and good love, They also lack true and good authority. And so we, because I'm a people pleaser, and so we go looking for it, right? And where do we search? Well, amongst people. For a moment, the people pleaser finds love, but it's fleeting. And the standard for acquiring love in this world is always changing anyways. For a moment, the people pleaser finds authority, but they soon discover that it's bad authority the kind that enslaves the oppressed to the whims and wishes of the dominator. <laughs> Listen, if you've ever struggled with people-pleasing, like I have, you, you know that all, what, all that I'm saying here is, is true. This is the life of the people-pleaser. And it's in these moments when we realize just how hopeless, how unending our people-pleasing is that we're tempted to say, well, I'm done with people. I'm done with people. I'm done with people. But Paul doesn't write off the Corinthians because Paul doesn't need to write off the Corinthians because Paul never looked to the Corinthians as the ultimate judge and jury of his life. Paul was able to do all that he did with this church because he was not a people pleaser, but a people lover. And while people pleaser begin from a place of lack, the people lover begins from a place of being deeply loved by our heavenly father in Christ Jesus. A people people lover not only lives from the love of Christ, but under the authority of Christ. He or she recognizes that the one worth fearing, to quote Jesus, is not the one who can only kill the body, but the one who can, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, destroy both soul and body in hell. When you belong to Christ, you are freed to love others on God's terms, not on their terms. Paul says, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm a people lover. It's an important distinction. And so use your freedom to be a lover of all people, that many may be saved. Third thing in here, using our freedom improperly, yes, it could lead someone else into idolatry. It could hinder our witness to the world and amongst the church. But finally, it could also lead us into idolatry. One of the, the sneakiest ways Uh, that the devil and the flesh lead us back into sin, is by having us overplay our freedom hand. Our freedom hand. So let me be specific. There are many of you here this morning who are new Christians, new to following Jesus. Some of you, longtime followers of Jesus. Others of you, brand new. Let me be specific. You've been freed, but Paul says here, use your freedom wisely. So, Though you are free, for example, to drink responsibly, given your past and your struggles, it might be wiser for you to spend a season sober. Or, though you are free to play video games to the glory of God, given your past and your struggles, it might be wise to spend a season abstaining. Or, Though you are free to buy new clothes, nice clothes even, given your previous obsessive consumerism and need for outward approval, maybe you don't need to wear designers for a little bit. Hear me. Abstaining from any of these things is not a matter of justifying you before God. Christ has done that. But we must take seriously the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians ten twenty three: All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Last thing, you have been freed, so use your freedom to love your neighbor, that God may be glorified in all you do. Verse 31, read with me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Before Paul switches gears in the coming weeks, here's how he sums up the past three chapters. He says in verse 31, So whether you eat, or drink, or whatever you do, do all of it, all of it, with an eye towards, an ear towards, a aim towards the glory of God, the, the making known and glorious and big and famous who he is. See, if you have your life oriented towards your glory, the, the fame of Jake, if you have your entire life oriented towards building your brand, and you're standing, you have every reason to use your freedom to serve you and you alone. If your life is oriented towards your glory, then pay no mind to the struggles and weaknesses of others. Just ignore them. If your life is oriented towards your glory, then who cares who you offend? I'm going to just do me. But Paul is willing to lay down all of his rights to refuse payment, to eat or not eat, to drink or not drink, because his life has the singular goal, the singular trajectory of giving God all the glory, of giving him all the praise. And he doesn't want anything to risk that. He doesn't want anything to get in the way. And he invites us now to do the same. Chapter 11 begins, and really it's how verse chapter 10 ends. This is a mistake there. This is how chapter 10 ends right? He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The invitation we're left with this morning is to a pattern of being. Paul's not saying, do exactly what I do. He's already said, right? You remember this? Me and Apollos, we have different ministries, right? He's not saying do exactly what I do. Later in this letter, he'll say, listen, one Lord, one head over the body, but we have different roles to play. In this body, different gifts, even in this body. He's not saying do exactly what I do. His appeal is to a pattern of living, a pattern he spent the last three chapters describing. This is a life that prioritizes love over so called knowledge, a life of caring for the weak instead of only worrying about ourselves, a life of laying down what is rightfully ours, if there's even a chance it could obscure the gospel. It's a life of faithfulness to God and a rejection of idols. This is the pattern, Paul says, he learned from Christ himself. I should say, and maybe you thought this when we were reading the text, in an age of widely publicized failings of Christian leaders, it's important that Paul qualifies his request that the Corinthians be imitators of him. He says, you should only imitate me in as much as I am imitating Christ. Hear that. Only imitate me. Only follow this pattern of being in as much as it corresponds with the witness of Jesus Christ. Don't follow me blindly. Don't follow me because I'm your guru. Don't follow me because it sounds good. Follow me Because I'm trying my darndest to follow after Christ and to imitate Christ and his way of being. So, our criteria, I want to make this explicit for Christian leaders, for myself, for Heath, for Daniel, for Paul, for all of you who serve in Christian leadership, is not are they visionary entrepreneurs? Or are they captivating communicators? Or are they skilled in the spiritual gift of property acquisition? Or are they successful according to worldly metrics? Our criteria is this and this alone. Do they look like Christ? Do they look like Jesus? Does their life and their teaching reflect the ministry of Jesus? Not just what they do on Sunday morning or in front of a stage, but at home when when no one is looking, when they're by themselves, when they're with their children, or with their wife, or at work? Do they look like Christ? Do they look like Christ? It's not just leaders. The success of this church in this neighborhood hinges, hinges on this church being transformed into the image of Christ. On you being transformed more and more and more into the image of Christ. It hinges on a church filled with Christ-like examples, striving to live this strange and paradoxical and often confusing way of being in front of your neighbors and your friends. And if you're new to all of this this morning, if all of what I'm saying sounds like religious gobbledygook, let me also say this. It's tempting to hear what I just said like this. You should be nice to other people. Or you should just love other people. But I want to be so clear. and As a church, we want to be so clear. To not be clear here would be a disservice to you. There is no walking this path without trusting in the one who walked it first. There is no imitating Christ without trusting in Christ. In fact, there's no imitating Christ without belonging to Christ. Without trusting that Jesus laid aside what was rightfully his without trusting that Jesus took on humanity in all of its fullness, without trusting that Jesus died the terrible death that we deserve. The only way we are free to be people lovers and not people pleasers is by having our life once and for all defined by the God who sent his son to save us. Jesus was not a people pleaser. Jesus gave us what we needed not what we thought we wanted. And he showed himself to be the greatest lover of people this world has ever known. Jesus, Jesus alone, Jesus offers us the true freedom that we are longing for. Isn't that true? Let's pray. So Jesus, we invite you now by your spirit to search our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there's something by your spirit you've you've sort of awoken in my heart or or someone else's heart here, Lord, and and we're trying furiously to to push it back down, to ignore it, right, to think about lunch or or something else, Lord, I I pray that by your spirit you'd give us the courage in this moment to to stare that thing, that thought, in, in the face, to bring it before you. Lord, if it's a sin that needs repenting of, Lord, give us strength to repent. If it's repentance that requires another believer, another brother or sister in Christ that's offended them, then I pray that we'd go to them and ask for their forgiveness. Lord, if it's a truth that we have failed to believe about you, Lord, would we confess right now our unbelief and choose today to believe whatever it is you're speaking to us? Lord, we ask that as we respond in in, in all these ways that you'd be present and glorified in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.